Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Galatians 2, 11 through 16. But first, it's a big and it's a special and it's an important day. It's my son Ransom's birthday today. He is... Seven years old. He was born on the 4th of July, and so it's the America's birthday. It's Ransom's birthday. Our last name is Sparks, and we get to see fireworks, so it's pretty cool. Works out pretty well. So proud of him. Thankful for all that God is doing in his life, and he is learning to grow. He's growing and learning, learning what it means to be a, a Christian man, and we always talk about worship, work, protect, provide, lead, love. That's what men do, and he's on his way, and so I'm excited. I love him very much. It's also America's birthday, and I do want to thank the Lord for America. Thank God for all that he has done in our past. Freedom from tyranny is a glorious thing to celebrate. It really is. It's been a long forgotten thing, especially in my generation. But our founding fathers and before them, the pilgrims, came here on an amazing project to see the kingdom of God established in the new world. We are a Christian nation, we have been a Christian nation, we were a Christian nation, in the sense that an overwhelming majority of people before our independence in 1776 up to Independence Day and after were believers in Jesus Christ. Over half of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, over half went to divinity school. They were believers in Jesus, trained for Christian ministry. Jesus. The deist of the day, you hear this all the time, I heard this growing up, all the founders were all deists. That was a flat contradiction to the truth, and it's a difference in definition. Deists of the day were those like some of the Unitarians who, de- who denied the divinity of Jesus, and yet they regularly quoted the scriptures, talked about the providence of God and the Almighty God in daily letters, writings, and all their documents and political language. The scriptures are everywhere. And so few of them were deists who denied the divinity of Jesus, but many of them were Orthodox and Protestant believers, godly men, who got many, many things right and a few things wrong. The narrative has been switched today to say that they got a few things right and most everything else wrong, and that is flat wrong. They fought for freedom for the Christian religion, and I think that they would have, based on their own words, repudiated the idea of a pluralistic society. Freedom of religion to them was freedom of denomination. And that's a big difference. Freedom of Christian denomination. They loved Jesus and they wanted the people of God to follow the law of God. It's important to understand that the American project was birthed out of a concern for the law of God and for the fight against tyranny who wanted to control the lives of their subjects. They wanted to control the lives of the people in an ungodly way. And our founding fathers knew... They knew this, that human government did not have inerrant authority. They had delegated and regulated authority from God. God has given human government delegated and regulated authority. Government doesn't have authority just because they are the government. That is a really important truth. They have been delegated and regulated. And they understood this. Human government is to be God's servant... They are not to pretend that they are God. 
They do the work of God, not the work of Satan. When governing authorities rule with an iron fist, they require their subjects to obey them over God. That's the problem. And here we have the American Revolution. The revolution was not a lawless revolution like the French Revolution. It's important to know that. It was a stand against government overlords in Great Britain who are breaking their own law and requiring the American people to sin against God. They were requiring the American people to go against the law of the land. And so it was not a rebellion against the law. The American Revolution was upholding the law. The tyrants were the ones breaking the law. And so we were holding them accountable. America was. That is the Christian obligation then, and it is the Christian obligation to this day. Acts chapter 5, verse 29 tells us, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Every Christian must do this. Every Christian must resist authorities that demand that we obey them over God. As Matthew Matthew Trella says, when the government commands that which God forbids or forbids that which God commands, we have to disobey the government and obey God. Romans 13.1 tells us this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And the question that I have for all Americans is, who are the governing authorities in America? And if we look at our founding documents, we understand that we, the people, have a governing responsibility in this land. And if we look at things and they're going in a way that's awful, we need to make a stand and go to those voting polls and make our voice known that there is a king that's superior to those that are elected and appointed and they will answer to him one day. And for those who rule against him and lead in a way that he would not have them lead, we need to let them know that they are disobeying God and we need to kick them out. Americans fought for the rule of law. So in that sense, it was not a revolution It was resistance against the tyranny that was brought against them. And today we must, I think, as Christian believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, celebrate freedom from government tyranny. Freedom to live our lives as God would have us. And I want to stand with the founding fathers telling the world that they must and we must and government leaders elected and appointed must obey God over man. And by God's grace, I want to rule well in the country and fight to let elected and appointed officials know that they are public servants and they are not emperors. Jesus is king. He is their king, whether they acknowledge it or not, for the glory of God and for the good of the world. And so we thank God this day that our founding fathers, that the American people fought against tyranny. And we want to walk in that tradition. We are Christians. There are two things that I think are important for us to understand as Christians. That we obey God rather than man. We submit To rulers, unless they ask us to do that which God forbid, and we need to rule well. So I want to pray, thank the Lord for our country before we move forward. Hey, we live in America. Don't tread on me, and don't tread on my neighbor. Because we have freedom in Christ, we want to see that freedom demonstrated in the world. And we want to thank God for it. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for all that you've done in our country. We want to honor you. We thank you. And Lord, we recognize that there is a kingdom that's being established that goes beyond nation boundaries. It goes into all the world. And it's the kingdom of God. And Jesus is king of every place and every square inch of this world. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And there are people who are walking in the freedom of Christ, not just in America, but all across the world. But God, we want to see 
tyrants pushed away. We want to see people ruling well, and we want to see people free to live their lives as you would have them without government interference. And we thank you for all that you've done in our country. I pray more and more people would recognize the joy that it is to live in this country, the blessing that it is to live in this country, and that we would not take for granted what our people in the past have bled, fought, and died for. We thank you for the liberty we experience, and we want it to go around the world. God, I pray against wicked rulers. God, I pray for President Joe Biden, who is an evil man wanting to do evil things. But we recognize his position, and we ask that you would, you would change his heart, that you would bring repentance to him, and that he would repent of his evil positions, and he would trust in you. We pray that you would give, through your common grace, give wisdom to men and women who are in charge in our country as elected officials who do not know you and do not care about your law. I pray you would give them common grace to do the right thing and then give them special grace that their lives would be changed, that they would be saved by the power of the gospel. Holy Spirit, help us to rule well in this country as the people. We, the people of the United States of America, help us to rule well as you would have us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now it is interesting. We just sang a song, a Hail Sovereign Love, which first began, a scheme to rescue fallen man. That song was first discovered to the public at large in the breast coat pocket of Major John Andre, who was a British war general. He was put to death, executed by George Washington for being uh, on the American side on American land behind enemy lines with civilian clothes on. He didn't have his, his uh, major outfit on, and he ended up being executed by George Washington. Well, sewn inside of his breast coat pocket was the song, Hail Sovereign Love. That song right there, written by Jedediah Brewer a couple years earlier. And it was wrongly accredited to Major Andre as him being the author of that because he didn't put Jedediah Brewer. But a few days before Major John Andre died, he trusted in Jesus to be his hiding place. And he had written that down, put that in his breast coat pocket. When they took his body down, they found Hail Sovereign Love, which first began a scheme to rescue fallen man. And he found his hiding place in Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's so neat. We, we, thank, we thank God for America for fighting against tyrants. And yet... Even on the side of those who are in the wrong, Major John Andre is a brother in Christ. And we're going to get to meet, meet John Andre one day. We're going to meet him because the blood of Christ goes beyond nations. And there's freedom throughout this world that people have in Jesus Christ, even those who are experiencing major government tyranny. And we want to thank God for his power to break through even in communist China and save people. And all throughout this world, we have brothers and sisters in Christ. It's pretty, pretty neat. All right, sermon title this, this morning is The Rumble at Antioch, The Rumble at Antioch. You've heard about the rumble in the jungle, you've heard about the thriller in Manila, you've heard about those fights, those great heavyweight battles. This morning we see the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and they're going to go at it in Antioch and we're going to see the gospel prevail and we're going to talk about justification by faith. Galatians chapter 2 verse 11 through 16, let me go ahead and read it. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're going to end with justification, and next week we're going to start with justification. It is the crown jewel of the Christian faith, I would say, just below understanding who God is, theology proper, the proper name for it. I'm sure you guys have heard conversations like this before. A debate about whether or not Christians should address each other in private or in public. And I would say in the beginning that it depends on the situation. But the argument goes like this. Someone publicly in the Christian faith says something or writes something that is questionable or heretical. So they publicly put out information. Could be a writer, could be an author, could be a preacher. Somebody publicly says something or writes something that's questionable or heretical. They do this publicly. And then another brother or sister responds publicly to that heretical or questionable comment. They respond publicly to something that was said publicly. Now, I'm sure you've heard this. The defenders of the first group publicly call out the second guy for not calling out the first guy privately. You ever seen that? hey, and they'll say this publicly, you shouldn't call them out publicly as they're calling them out publicly. And there's nothing said to the first person who spoke out publicly in a heretical or in a questionable manner. So the offense comes not with the rank teaching or the questionable teaching. The offense is that somebody would call that out. And you probably have seen that before. And so the public statement comes to the one that called it out publicly when it all started with a public statement. We all know about this. Worldly Christianity has great toleration for false teaching. And they have no toleration for anybody who comes against it. Let me say that again. Worldly Christianity has great toleration for false or questionable teaching and no toleration for anybody who comes against it. And it is a big problem. When false teaching comes or sinful behavior comes and it goes unconfronted, people, real people with real names, friends and family, people get hurt and and God is dishonored. It's a really big deal. And today, we look at one of those very intense public altercations in the Bible, probably maybe the most intense public altercation in the Bible, the day Paul publicly confronted Peter. It's one of the most important days in the history of the Christian church. It's one of the most important days for the Apostle Paul and in Peter's life as well. Verse 11, Peter in Antioch. Now remember, last week... Paul introduced this idea, what's going on in the churches of Galatia. We've seen it before. It happened in Jerusalem, and it also now has happened in Antioch. So this is in chapter 2. We see two case studies that apply to what's going on in Galatia. In the churches of Galatia, there were Judaizers, which were people who had come in to the churches of Galatia and said, you need to trust in Jesus, but you also must be circumcised and then walk in the customs of Moses if you're going to be right before God. You have to trust in Jesus And you have to walk in the law and be justified by Jesus plus the law. And Paul vehemently opposes that and says, if anybody is preaching that gospel, let them be condemned because that's a false gospel. And then he says, there's two examples. This has happened before. It's like a rotating thing. False teaching always comes back. It's happened in Jerusalem and it's happened in Antioch. And here it is with Peter, the Jews, and even Barnabas, Paul's buddy. 
Look at verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, we need to see this and understand this. Peter was not the first pope. This is so crucial. There is no such thing as divine right. We see with Peter, he was clearly in the wrong. It's a far, far cry from papal supremacy. Paul saw the wrong action of Peter, and he addressed Peter's actions publicly. It was publicly. Verse 14 we see, not just in 11, but this face-to-face interaction. Because in verse 11 we see that it was just face-to-face. It could have been not, you know, private face-to-face. But in verse 14 we see, But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the, with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all. This public confrontation was between Paul and Peter. Peter who was there with Jesus from the beginning. Peter who preached at Pentecost. And here is Paul in front of everybody, in front of this whole room. Peter, you are wrong. And Peter stood condemned. Now this is an important word. It says he stood condemned or he was with fault. He was not, or he was, uh, which means not a theological con- condemnation because we know This is not a statement of condemnation before the Lord as if Peter was not forgiven or as if this sin was somehow held against him. This is not a statement like that because we we know Romans chapter 8 verse verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. But here this means that Peter was clearly wrong and he was blameworthy. He was the culprit here of the wrong action. Peter was wrong and it was clear. So wrong that Paul had to address it, and he had to address it publicly. How easy would it have been for, for those to come around and say, Paul, don't you know who you're talking with? I mean, Peter and Barnabas and all the Jews, I mean, are they all wrong? And you're right, how arrogant and how prideful of you, Paul. For you to come against Peter publicly, it would have been so much more kind of you if you would have pulled on his shirt coat or jacket coat or his, what was it that they wore, his tunic, and just brought him out back and said, hey, Paul, we, or Peter, we got to address this. To start eating with those Gentiles again because your conduct is out of line. But no, what Paul does is publicly and in the sight of everyone. Okay, this is if we use this as a metaphor, this is somebody doing something falsely, and then you publicly in a small group or somewhere else saying, You this is something you shouldn't do. This is false teaching, that's not true. Or somebody, a big name person saying something heretical or false or questionable, somebody calling them out publicly, and then you can hear the rumblings. You shouldn't do that. The same thing could have been said to the Apostle Paul. You shouldn't do this, Paul. But it's the very thing that was required. It was in this moment that Paul had a decision to make. I'm either going to be light with Peter here, and I'm going to let this fly, or I'm going to do what's required, the uncomfortable thing, the difficult thing, and I'm going to step up, and I'm going to address Peter in front of everyone in this moment. I have to do this. Because I cannot dishonor my master. It was that big of a deal. It had to be public. We find out in verse 12 that Peter was afraid. That he did what he did. Most likely knowing it was wrong. But we find out the motive for doing what he did. Look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, we know from Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 11 that James was the presiding, quote-unquote, lead pastor in Jerusalem. James was the pastor in the Jerusalem church. There were other apostles, including Peter, who were there with him. But James had sent some people up from Jerusalem to Antioch. So when certain people came from James, 
he was eating with the Gentiles. So Peter would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Fearing the circumcision party. Peter was afraid. Now before this crew came, Peter, understanding that the gospel of Jesus breaks down every dividing wall of hostility, understanding that the blood of Christ unites Jew and Gentile, it unites us in this room with Major John Andre. It unites us with people throughout this world, the church in Iraq and China and Afghanistan, the church in Canada, the church in South America, the church all over the world. We're united through the blood of Jesus. And yet here, Peter stepped back and made the decision to not eat with the Gentiles any longer because he was afraid of the circumcision party that had come up from Jerusalem. He was afraid. This is the connection to Galatia, the circumcision party. They were saying the exact same things. We find it in, in the book of Acts, verse 15, at the Jerusalem council as well. We find out that is circumcision required for salvation, to be justified, to be made right with God. This is the connection right here with the churches in Galatia. Is it going to be Jesus plus something else? Or is Christ really enough to unite Jew and Gentile? Is he really enough to save us and to forgive us all of our sins? There was a break in fellowship, unfortunately, with Peter and the crew, with the Gentiles and Peter. Um, the gospel was added to. Something was added to the gospel. When the gospel of Jesus is added to, what you end up having is divisions and factions. And you see that all over the place to this day. The, the moment we say the blood of Jesus is not enough to unite us, you end up seeing division everywhere. And then when division comes, those who are walking in the division look at those who are saying, the blood of Jesus is enough to unite us. And they say, look how divisive you're being. And you're like, no, no, Jesus is really enough. Black, white, Jew, Gentile, we're one in Christ. There's enough room at the cross for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, what age you are, what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy. If you know Jesus, if you've been born again from the inside out through the power of God and through the grace of God, you have brothers and sisters in Christ. There is unity in the blood of Jesus. But false gospels build up what God has tore down in Christ. We see the power of influence. Why so many people turned away and walked with Peter. Even Barnabas and the Jews. Everybody in Antioch. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So there were Jewish believers in Antioch along with Peter eating with the Gentiles. It was a great potluck. Everybody brought something. Everybody had a good time. They were playing bags out back. They were just enjoying their party and everything was fine. Week in and week out receiving the Lord's table together. Praying, fellowshipping. But when Peter feared those who came from James, the other Jewish Christians jumped in along with Peter because it's after all, it's Peter and even Barnabas was led astray by that hypocrisy. You see the power of influence here. You see, Peter, the Jews, and Barnabas all saying, you know, if, I mean, if it's Peter, if Peter's doing it, if Barnabas, I mean, everybody in the church of Antioch had a pretty good apologetic. Peter did it. Barnabas did it. All the Jews did it. 
must be right. And everybody in Antioch, all the Jews, we don't know how the Gentiles were feeling at this time. But from what we know, they all just got in line. They didn't say anything. Even though they were united by the blood of Jesus, they were not living like it. They didn't act like it. Verbally, hey, we're, we're, Jesus has saved us, but we can't hang out with you. Their proclamation and their action didn't line up. There was hypocrisy. And nobody said anything. Nobody stopped to say, hey, Peter, Barnabas, I think this is hypocritical. I think this is wrong. This is not right. It's as if everybody was saying, surely both of them can't be wrong. And everybody followed in the sinful actions of Peter. Tell you what, influence is a powerful thing. And it is very easy to just get in line with what everybody else is doing. Well, Paul shows up and he, you know, everybody's just kind of like get, getting along in their hypocrisy. And Paul gets there. He's not having it. He's not going to play nice. He's going to do the right thing. Look at verse 14. Imagine the tension, honestly. I mean, if you could be the fly on the wall for this conversation. I mean, it's one of those moments, and they come in the scriptures regularly. You see this in the life of Jesus. If you could be the fly on the wall, I mean, everybody, imagine when he's doing the woes to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, when he's doing the seven woes to the Pharisees. Hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. And they're all like, he's talking about me. And, and he's talking about, you know, him. Um, there's many moments like this in the scriptures. But this is one of them where, where you're, like, you're like, oh my gosh, this is going down. This is really happening right now. I mean, Paul, I've, I've got to tell everybody, you know. Paul tells us the real issue, 14a, look with me. But when I saw that their conduct, that's important, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, and let's pause before we go to his words, Peter's hypocrisy exposed. Peter, you're living like a Gentile. Oh, no, wait, I was supposed to read that. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is Peter's hypocrisy exposed. Peter, you're living like a Gentile, meaning you are not trying to be justified by the law of Moses. Okay? If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, meaning he is not trying to be justified by the law of Moses. So then... Why are you trying to force Gentiles to be justified by the law of Moses? Why, why are you doing this, Peter? You know that you're saved by Christ and his work and not through yourself and your work before God through the law. You're living like a Gentile and not like a Jew. So why are you separating yourselves and forcing them to live by, like Jews? You know that Jews can't be saved by works of the law. So why are you doing this? It's a complete contradiction. Peter had been justified by faith, but he was preaching justification by works of the law to the Gentiles by his actions. He was forcing them to do something to be justified. God did not require that, but Peter and then the Jews and Barnabas were requiring that of them. If you're going to spend time with us, you've got to be circumcised. If you're going to really be right with God, 
you got to have Jesus. Yeah, that's good. But you need to polish that Jesus thing up a little bit. And you need to start living by the law of Moses if you want to be justified. You have to be circumcised. And then you have to obey God's law. There's always a kernel of truth. Twisted kernels of truth in false teaching. Verse 15 and 16, we get an introduction to justification by faith. This is so good. It's a teaser for next week, by the way. We're going to start here, end here this week, and we're going to come back to this next week because it's so wonderful. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Keep this in mind. How many times he goes back to this? And we'll look at this next week. Not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He says the exact same thing three times in different ways. You can't be justified by works of the law. We're justified by faith in Christ. Paul wouldn't have it. He appealed to his noble birth, even though we were born Jews, we know that we're not justified through the law. We were born with the law, with the promises, with the covenants. And we were not born as Gentile sinners, is what he says in verse 15. And yet, even though that's true, we were born with this advantage of having the law of God and the promises and the covenants. Even though that's true, we know, we're Jews, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith. And he says, so we have believed in Jesus Christ, not in works. He says it again, by works of the law, no one will be justified. And it's so important that we understand this because it's so easy to turn faith into a work. Faith, this is so crucial, faith is not a work. Faith is not a work that we get rewarded for. Justification is is not the reward of our work of faith. It's so important. And I want to inter introduce you to, if you haven't thought through this, a paradox of the Christian faith. If we turn faith or understand faith, our faith, as a work, we're missing out completely on the nature of the supernatural reality that is a person believing in Jesus Christ. Nowhere in the Bible is faith called a decision. Nowhere in the Bible is faith called a decision. Decisions save no one. Dis Jesus saves anyone who's saved. It's an important thing to understand. Do Christians make decisions? Yes, everyone makes decisions every single day. But the way a person gets saved is not taking faith out of their back pocket that everybody has and just placing it wherever they want to in a natural way. Supernatural faith is not dropped into everybody in the exact same way, and we just can dis dispense it anywhere we want to dispense faith. I'll believe in this, or I'll believe in that. Natural, vain belief can happen in that way, where you can believe whatever you want to believe. But you do not have the power in yourself, through the work of your faith, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are powerless to do that. Faith is not a work. There's a classic example. There's a song that I love to him. And I just, I just want you to hear this because it may feel like semantics to you, but I think it's really important. 
And this in no way negates the reality of calling people to repentance and faith. But I want you to see how glorious it is that we're saved by faith. And that faith is not a work that we're rewarded for. We have to see, it has been granted to you not only to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but to suffer for his sake. It's interesting, Jordan, was we were talking about that passage and talking about the opposition and the hostility of the gospel that they were experiencing. And that Paul was saying, hey, listen, this has been granted to you for hostility to come to you as well. But what's interesting about that passage in first, first, uh, Philippians chapter 1, it has been granted to you not only to believe. In other words, for you to believe, something has to be done, something has to be granted, something has to be given. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, this is not of yourselves, it's not of your own doing, but it's a gift from the Lord. So there's a classic error in this, because if you see faith as a work, what you're going to end up doing is praising yourself for faith. And you'll end up thinking, when we turn faith into a work, that you do have skin in the game. We've talked about this. That the difference between you and a non-believer is that I did something that they didn't do. And this opens up a paradoxical mystery that's so glorious. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His are higher and bigger and more beautiful than ours. There's a song that's great and hymnable. I've decided to follow Jesus. You guys know it. I have decided to follow Jesus. It sings really well. It's a great tune. Think about what you're singing about. I have. What are you singing about? What I've done. The whole song. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Those are some true statements in there. Okay, like, of course, if nobody follows Jesus, by the grace of God, we're going to follow Jesus. But that song is a song about what we do for God. I have decided to follow Jesus. The Red Mountain Band with that same tune, changed the word and said, I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. He rescued me. He rescued me. I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. He rescued me. He rescued me. Faith is not something that we have in our sinful nature. Faith is a supernatural gift. You are not a natural people. You are a people that have been brought from death to life. And you didn't naturally get into this. You have been touched by the almighty God of the universe. And you have been saved by grace through faith. Not by your own doing. Not by your work of faith. You express your faith that God has given you. But you are not rewarded for that faith. It's, it's not, you do this and I'll do this. It's God's grace from beginning to end. And when we understand that our salvation, that we are justified by grace and by grace alone, that even the faith that we have expressed has been given to us supernaturally by God, and we have to turn to God and say, God, thank you that you turned my heart towards you. 
that you changed my heart from the inside out, that you softened my heart to hear the good news of the gospel that I didn't hear before. I heard it come in one ear and out the other so many times. But then one day, you opened my eyes, you opened my heart to hear the truth of the gospel, and I was saved by faith through your grace and through your grace alone. And friends, that gets a hold of you. We are saved and justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. We have to understand with the Apostle Paul and what Peter understood, he just forgot. He failed to live out. When somebody asks you, why are you a Christian? The answer isn't first, because I. Because I did anything. The answer is because God has been merciful to me. And I can't tell you to be like me. But I, let me tell you about a Jesus who saves sinners. And I want to invite you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus today. And friends, it may be the 50th time they've heard it. And you may think, I'm going to tell them again. They're, going to, they're so annoyed with me already. I'm like this dripping faucet that just keeps telling them about Jesus and keeps praying for them. But you know what? It may be that 51st time. How many people remember Kurt Caldwell? You know Kurt Caldwell. He told me in the year leading up to his conversion, after he was saved, he remembered 17 times he counted that he could remember that somebody told him about Jesus that year. 17 times that somebody laid out the gospel in one fashion or another and told him about Jesus. But on that 17th or 18th time, that 18th time, something made sense. And friends, faith is not a work. We are saved by grace and not by works. Therefore, faith inherently cannot be a work because we're not saved by works. We're saved by Christ and Christ alone. Let's get back. We're going to have some justification talk next week. Some great quotes about justification, great passages. Things like, I do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness were gained through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the faith and the life I now live. I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, gosh. It's rich. Peter stood corrected. Peter stood corrected. We don't have any record of Peter speaking back. I don't know if it was a deer in the headlight moment. I don't know. I tend to think it was a moment like when the rooster crowed where Peter's like you're right I was wrong Ephesians 2 I, I, I remember these conversations that, about Christ that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down Peter would like Paul would write that later Ephesians 2 we don't have any record of Barnabas speaking back. Ugh. We don't have any record of him turning to Peter and saying, Peter, you dummy, I told you. This isn't right, felt wrong. They were caught red-handed in their sin. And hear me say this, yet there is grace for Peter and for Barnabas. The glory of being saved by Christ is we're actually saved by Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. 
and in spite of the quality of our life. When you understand the truth that when you're at your worst, you are just as much a son or daughter of the living God as when you're absolutely the best in your spiritual disciplines. When you memorize that whole book of the Bible or the day that you feel like you've hit rock bottom. If you belong to the Lord, you are just as much a son or daughter of the living God on your worst day, in the midst of your worst sin, as you are on the day memorizing and regurgitating that chapter you just memorized. There's something that the grace of God works and does inside of a person that changes them forever. And justification by faith in Christ is this crown doctrine, this central doctrine of the Christian faith that's different than everything else. That God's pleased with me in Christ Jesus right now when I feel I'm at rock bottom because of what Christ has done. We are justified. The gavel has come down. Justified. You're forgiven. You are counted righteous because of what Christ has done. And they were caught red-handed denying this, separating themselves from other brothers and sisters in Christ, acting as if the blood of Jesus does not unite us. And there's grace for, Paul, for Peter and Barnabas. Why? Because they were justified by faith in Christ. That's why. There's grace for Peter and for Barnabas and those Christian Jews. There's grace for them even in their action, even in their action of separating themselves. They were still justified in Christ. Friends, maybe you have been there with the Apostle Peter. Maybe you have been seduced like Barnabas or the Jews, into believing lies. Or maybe you've been in that action of separating yourselves or feeling like, oh, I'm a Christian and I'm superior because I. Maybe you've turned your nose up in the year 2020 and 2021. It's been easy for me to turn my nose up at Clown World. I think I'm better but by the grace of God, I'm right with them. And it may be a different manifestation of wickedness, but I would be just as hopeless and as helpless as they. There's grace for you. There's grace. Again, I don't know if Peter, what he did with Paul. I don't know if he did this for a while. Paul, you've embarrassed me in front of everybody. Don't you know who I am? Where were you at Pentecost? I remember what you did to Stephen. Or if he was deer in the headlights. But here's, that, here's what I know. Peter, later on, and all throughout the rest of the book of Acts, and all throughout the other epistles, Peter had great admonition for his friend Paul. And he recognized the work of God in Paul. This did not sever their relationship. This is a part of their friendship in Christ. And so I want to be like Peter and Barnabas today in areas that we need to repent. And we need to be like the Apostle Paul today and remember what Christ has done and become heralds of the grace of God, the free grace of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We need to call people to repentance, call people to remember how we were saved by grace through faith, by grace through faith, grace comes before faith. Grace through faith. And how we are kept by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Saved by grace, and friends, we are kept 
by grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you're doing. I could preach my whole life about the glory of your grace, your love for us, your kindness to us, your full forgiveness that you've given us, and I could never scratch the surface, the glory of justification. I could never scratch the goodness of your goodness. I'll never preach a sermon that rightly honors you for who you are and what you've done. And so I come to you as an imperfect man, even now, as a preacher of the gospel, come to you needy for your grace and a recipient of your grace because you lavish it upon your children. And I receive it. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your love for me. For your children in this room, I pray that we would enjoy your grace. Thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you that we are justified not by our own actions or efforts, not because I did something that somebody else didn't do, but because you did something for me. You brought me out of death and into life. Brought me out of darkness into light. And for anybody here who does not know you this morning, I pray that they would recognize the sheer folly of trying to get to you through their works. I pray that they would not come to you with their best efforts, not come to you trying to figure out how how I can make myself cleaner or better, how I can get my, my spiritual muddy boots off. God, I pray that they would come just as they are in repentance and faith that they would come and trust in you, that they would repent of their sins and trust in you, and they would receive full forgiveness. Help us to sing, I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Now the Holy Spirit will lead us. And if anybody here wants to pray, you pray with somebody that's with you in your row that brought you or a friend or family member. If you're a child and you want to pray with your parents, talk to your parents about it. If you don't have anybody to pray with, you can come forward and I would gladly pray for you about whatever the Holy Spirit would lead you to get prayer about. Let's sing.